Thank you so much for joining us. The inaugural edition of TB25, A History of Football. I'm Tom Lydon. I'm Butch Stearns, and you're excited, aren't you? I'm very excited. You know, I'm a newcomer when it comes to even listening to podcasts. And there's a couple different podcasts that I like. I do like listening to Kirk Minahan's podcast from WEI, Enough About Me. I like his interaction with people and the interviews that he does. I also love a podcast called The West Wing Weekly because I loved the show The West Wing. And it actually gave me the idea for this podcast because what they do in that one is they break down a specific episode of the show. And if you're a big fan of the show, and you like kind of going behind the curtain and seeing how they put that show together, it's a neat thing. So I know everyone's a football fan, and if there's one thing that I know, and I know there's one thing you know better than anything else, it's the history of football. So I got to reel you in, because I know you got great stories, and I know your love of football really started back in the 60s, which we're going to talk about here. Now, ultimately, so people understand what the plan is here, we are going to talk about each season. So, you know, episode two or episode three, depending on how many guests we get, we'll focus in specifically on the 1970 season. And we'll talk about what happened that year. We'll bring in a guest, talk about everything that led up to that year's Super Bowl and championship. But we decided for this episode one that we'll talk about the pre-merger era. And that's where you were really introduced to football, right? Well, here's the thing that I love about what we're doing here, Tom. You wrote me into this. Your passion <laughs> was palpable, and I'm dead serious about this. And I am a huge football fan. I think everybody is a huge football fan when you think about it. It's the most popular industry, I think, in our country when you think about it, and one of the most successful. So what I love about this is I respect the people that built what the NFL has become today. Every time I've met any of them, I mean, they literally were all the stories you heard. They were the people that didn't make enough money, so they worked for UPS in the offseason. They did all that. So the Gino Capalettis of the world, the Jim Nances growing up in Boston, the Joe Namaths of the world, the Jerry Kramers, people that we're going to talk to, I respect what they've done and what they've built. And again, you're probably more of a historian around the game of football than I am, but I'm passionate about the game. So when it comes to podcasts, I love people to talk about things that they're passionate about, and you and I are both passionate about the game. So we'll set the stage for what we're gonna do in this episode one. We are gonna talk to Jerry Kramer, who was one of the legendary Green Bay Packers. And when you talk about the pre-merger era, and specifically football in the 1960s, you have to focus in on really two main things in my book. The fact that the Packers were absolutely dominant but also the upstart AFL, and how that really pushed to the merger. And the merger was 1970. So Jerry's gonna join us, he's 80 years old. Really had a fantastic conversation with him, sharing stories about Vince Lombardi and all his teammates and all the championships they won. But before we get there, let's just sort of set the stage for kind of how we, how we get to 1970. Because you know, you come off the 58 championship game, which many people call the greatest game that was ever played between the Giants and the Colts. It goes to overtime, it's on TV, it's really the explosion of professional football. And from there, it's kind of lost that those two teams played again. But the two coordinators from the Giants that lost those championship games to the Colts were Tom Landry and Vince Lombardi. <laughs> The impact that those two guys had on the game of football with Landry going to the Cowboys and being there until Jimmy Johnson took over in the late 80s, Lombardi going to the Packers and completely turning that story around, it really was the birth of football as we know it. And you know what's interesting, you bring up a point when you mentioned Landry and Lombardi. So the 60s were an era where football was built, because in 1970 it was the merger. So it was the AFL and NFL. It was what, you know, baseball still is today. They played by different rules. The DH is still in baseball. Now we have the NFL. Yeah, we have the AFC and NFC, but they play each other during the year. But up until then, these were two competitors that happened to start playing in the Super Bowl in the 60s so and, and what's interesting about the coaches you bring up is to me the NFL today is about its star players but it really was about its legendary coaches when you built it up the Hank Strams of the world to go along with uh, Tom Landry and Vince Lombardi and so many others that built 
the NFL. So the 60s to me were about the coaches and about the leagues that were going against each other, the AFL and the NFL, which were so different. All right, so the NFL, when you get to 1959, just as the dawn of 1960 hits, it was a 12-team league. So right. the Dallas Cowboys come into the NFL in 1960, and that's when Landry took over there. But 1960 was also the year that the Packers went to their first championship game where they played the Philadelphia Eagles with Sonny Jurgensen. And when you think about the big names of the 60s, you got Sonny Jurgensen with the Eagles, and then that carried on to a career with the Redskins. You know, Gail Sayers played from 65 to 71. Jim Brown was right in, in his prime, and we'll get to some of what Jim Brown meant to the game of football in the NFL with Jerry Kramer, but we can talk about him too. Johnny Unitas, obviously a stud. You know, Leroy Kelly took over for Jim Brown. The fearsome foursome really came into fruition in the 1960s with Merlin Olson, Deacon Jones, Rosie Greer, and Lamar Lundy. At Los Angeles Rams, but more than anything else, this was not a national footprint. Football was not a national footprint. No. And in many ways, it was the AFL that helped push football west because so many stories you hear, and, I, and you even talked about it today. You know, how many times were you sitting there at 4 o'clock in front of your television and watching the teams that are now in the AFC West going up and down the field, throwing the ball all over the place, whether it be the Chargers or the Raiders or the Broncos or the Chiefs? I mean, that was really the dawn of football across the country. Well, I'm a little older than you. I was born in 1960, so my memories of football were sitting in front of the television in the late 60s with my dad, and it was the... Boston Patriots. It was Jim Nance and Gino Capaletti. It was the AFL Patriots. But it seemed like every single Sunday, Tom, and this was getting into the 70s, but every single Sunday, my dad and I, my late dad, were sitting there watching Kurt Gardy and Al D. Rogatis and the Chiefs and the Raiders. I swear, when I was a kid, they played every single Sunday on TV. Of course, it wasn't that way, but it felt that way. So you had in the NFL uh, your 12 teams and they were dominated by the Packers, who lost to Philadelphia, as we pointed out, in 60. But then they came right back, and Jerry will tell a great story about what Vince Lombardi said to him, but they won the next two championships. And then the big scandalous story of the 1960s is the fact that Paul Hornig and Alex Karras were both mm -hmm. suspended for gambling. for gambling. And that, you can imagine how would, that would be treated in 2016. You mean like deflating footballs? A little bit. <laughs> times 10. Imagine if a player was busted for it, gambling on the yeah. sport and what that might mean. But the fact that the Packers, a two-time defending champ, they lose Horning. Uh, devastating effects for them, but at the same time, it also opened the door for the Browns, who had Jim Brown in their backfield, probably uh, the greatest running back ever to play, even though he didn't amass the most number of yards. Uh, he led that team in 64 to a championship and then brought Cleveland back again the next year in 65 to play the Packers, which if you could imagine what that scene would be like, a defending champ going up against you know, a power, much like when the Seahawks, as defending champs, went up against the Patriots well, in Super Bowl 49. Here's what's interesting. We're going to hear from Jerry Kramer coming up. I really enjoyed our conversation with Jerry Kramer for a million different reasons, and I think people are going to enjoy what he had to say, too, because if you think about the Packers starting the 60s, right, they are what the Montreal Canadiens were to hockey, what the New York Yankees were to uh, baseball, what the Boston Celtics were uh, starting out to basketball, and so many other championships. And here's where I think the parallels are. You look today, you mentioned Jim Brown, and you mentioned the Packers. You made the greatest player in the sport, but the greatest team in the sport mm. greater than any player. And we're going to hear Jerry Kramer talk about that. It's no different than what LeBron was before he started winning championships in the modern day <laughs> NBA. It's no different than what the Edmonton Oilers and Wayne Gretzky did when they won multiple championships. I mean, these parallels are similar in any sport. So to hear Jerry Kramer reminisce about how great the Packers were when Vince Lombardi took over and how they were building the NFL and going into the Super Bowls mm. and carrying those championships into Super Bowls. Again, Tom, what we're talking about here in the 60s is the foundation of what oh, yeah. the NFL was really built on. And, and the playoffs were not then what the playoffs are now in a, by a long shot, but what we saw was the expansion of the playoffs as the league expanded. And it used to be you won your division in the East, you played the division champ in the West, and that was the NFL championship game. The same way the AFL did it. You won the East, you played the champion from the West, and that was the championship game of that league. You know, as it continued to grow, you saw Minnesota come in the league, the NFL in uh, 1961. In 66, which was after the Super Bowl era started, the Falcons came in, followed the next year by the Saints in 1967. But the AFL grew, too. You know, the AFL started as an eight-team league. It ended as a ten-team league. They added the Dolphins in 1966, and then the Bengals came in 
into fruition in 1968, which is a crazy story because of how Paul Brown was run out of town by Art Modell. He says, fine, I'll go down the road, I'll start my own franchise, and that Paul Brown imprint is still on the Cincinnati Bengals because that family, that uh, team is still in his family. So you saw growth in both leagues that led to growth in the postseason, led to legendary playoff games. And, you know, the Packers were in that weird position where even before they started playing in Super Bowls, they were winning NFL championships. And now not only do they win the NFL championship against the Cowboys in both cases when they went to the Super Bowls, Super Bowls one and two, but now they got to go play this upstart team. And they got to play in this spectacle that is the Super Bowl. And it's not anything like it is now 51 years later, but it was something. And that's another Another interesting tale we're going to hear from Jerry Kramer. Well, one of the things you're going to hear from Jerry Kramer, too, that we talked to him about was how he felt about AFL players. And I'll tease it a little bit because it surprised me with the answer. Because growing up again in Boston, it was the AFL. And the legendary stars for me as a kid were Lenny Dawson of the Chiefs, Joe Namath of the Jets, Gino Capaletti and Babe Perilli of the Patriots. Again, the AFL startups, Daryl LaMonica of the Raiders and all of that. Um, but there was a great respect very quickly from the NFL guys <laughs> for the AFL guys when they started to merge because they realized they were like-minded. They realized that they were building the game of football. They didn't feel like it at the time because they were. It, it was the Hatfields and the McCoys. It was the Civil War of football for a time, a period of time. But again, you'll hear Jerry Kramer and the respect he still has to this day for AFL players. You know, it, sometimes stuff you can't predict. I think this made such a big difference in how the AFL gained credibility because when you look in the mid-60s, it was just happenstance in the biggest media market in the country. At that point, the only place that really had two teams, LA Giants had the and Chargers Jets, yeah. and they had the Rams for that one season before the Chargers went to San Diego. But the Giants and the Jets were both playing in New York, and I can tell my personal tale from my dad's perspective. You know, you couldn't get Giants season tickets at Yankee Stadium. You could not get them. It was just like the Patriots now or the Packers now, but there's a waiting list and you just can't get tickets. So if you're a kid in your 20s or early 30s and you got a girlfriend or a wife and you got friends who want to go to a football game, you know, the option was to go to Shea Stadium and watch this upstart team. And if you look at the way these teams progressed in the 60s, yeah, the Jets were good and the Giants stunk. And not only were the Jets good, but they had guys who still, almost 50 years later, their names ring with royalty. You know, you have yeah. Namath and Maynard and Snell and guys who ended up being in the Hall of Fame. And the Jets but but when you talk about New York, there was Frank Gifford and there was all the legendary Giants, too, that names. I mean, and up in Boston here, Tom, again, the New York point you're trying to make. Here's something I want to uh, make a point here. There are still to this day diehard Giants fans in New England. With the modern-day success of Belichick and Brady and the Patriots, it's died off a little bit. But growing up, it was a challenge to see whether the Giants or Patriots would be on here. The Giants right. were the only game in town. Before, when the Boston Patriots started, the New York Giants were the team you watched in Springfield, in Worcester, mm. in Maine, because they were the only game in town on national television when football was emerging on TV. Share with the listeners what you told me about, uh, and hopefully we get Gino on here at some point, but what Gino told you about how the AFL tried to market its teams with a marquee player in each market. Well, when I met Gino Capaletti, I was starstruck, and then I've heard so many stories. But there was a time, Gino was the face of the Patriots in the AFL, even though Babe Perilli was the quarterback. He was a kicker. He was the Duke. Gino not only was training at camp with the Patriots and practicing in, in, in where the Patriots practiced in Boston, but he was also doing sports on Channel 4 in Boston at the time, and he owned the most popular bar in Boston called The Point After. Why did this all come about? Gino will tell the story, but Lamar Hunt, who was very instrumental, owned the Kansas City Chiefs, but was very instrumental in AFL, had the idea, along with Pete Rozelle at the time, they wanted to have a marquee face in each of the AFL cities. So Joe Namath in New York, Lenny Dawson in Kansas City, Gino Capaletti in Boston, and all the others were on TV doing sports, playing football, and Gino, of course, owned a bar in town because they wanted to market their franchise. You know, as I was prepping for this, when you think about and you mentioned some of these names, but I think it's really unique that a lot of the AFL teams, over the course of the decade, you can point to one guy who was under center who was really the face of that franchise. Right. It's George Blanda in Houston, Len Dawson, Daryl LaMonica, 
John Hadle, Jack Kemp. You know, some people know him yes. as Bob Dole's running mate in 1996, but he was a really good quarterback for the Buffalo Bills back in the 60s. And you mentioned Babe Perilli and, of course, Joe Namath. Uh, names that are just synonymous with the really the explosion of high-powered offensive passing footballs. So the merger. And the merger comes when a guy like Roselle understands what he has in terms of a guy like Lamar Hunt. And he understands what he has at that time. And a forward thinker like Al Davis, who at one point was the commissioner of the AFL. And it took a long time. They butted heads, but they finally figured it out. What I think is amazing is that they came to an agreement that they were going to merge and then played four more seasons. I mean, I couldn't imagine that happening in this day and age. No, no. And, and again, when you think about the 60s and you think about the birth of what the NFL has become today, the names are legendary, Tom. You know, not only Pete Rozelle and Lamar Hunt, but you talk about Paul Brown and, and you talk about all the families that owned Lamar Hunt, the Hunts that owned it all. For them to come together and what they did today, here, here's one thing that I always say about the NFL. You look at the numbers when someone has bought an NFL franchise and you're like, oh my goodness, how much did they pay for it? Never once has anybody lost money on an NFL franchise. The value of an NFL franchise continues to go up and up and up and up. And you know what? It's all because of what was started in the 60s and all what you're talking about right now. What's great is that each decade has been defined by a dynasty and the Packers were so much the 60s. You know, they went to their first title game in 60. They went to their last title game in 1967 of one, two, three, four, five, six. So between 1960 and 1967, they played in six championship games plus two Super Bowls. You're not going to see that again. In this day and age of free agency and teams turning over the personnel every year, you're not going to see it. But what you also saw, and you're going to love this from Jerry Kramer, is how it ended and how the fans understood that it was over because Lombardi leaves, new coach comes in, and it's the end of an era. And it just so happens that that year that Lombardi had left, that's the year that the Colts went to the Super Bowl, powerful team from the 50s and 60s, and lost to the Jets. And so the, the confluence of events where you say goodbye to the Packer dynasty and welcome in this young upstart AFL team that's wearing the white cleats and throwing the ball 30 yards down the field, I find it fascinating. Well, to tee up Jerry Kramer, I'll just say this. If you're a young person, young being 30 years old or younger maybe, listening to this podcast right now and you're about to hear 80-something-year-old Jerry Kramer, the trophy that your champions hold today is called the Vince Lombardi Trophy for a reason. And you may have heard the name. You may have even seen some sound bites and clips on YouTube. Listen closely to what Jerry Kramer has to say about Vince Lombardi. He is the greatest coach in the history of any sport ever for a reason, and there's a reason this trophy is named after him. We're going to step aside real quick for a word from our sponsor. As we do that, I want to encourage you to go to our website, tb25.us. That's going to bounce you to our Facebook page. Give us a like. Give us your comments. Tell us what you like about the podcast, what you don't. We want this to be interactive. So we'll take a quick break. We'll come back. Jerry Kramer joins us on the other side. From its high-strength, military-grade aluminum alloy body to its high-strength steel frame, the Ford F-150 is a wake-up call for every full-size truck out there. This is a truck like never before, so you can work like never before. The game-changing Ford F-150, with greater towing and payload capacities and best-ever ride, handling, and braking. Every other truck is history. Experience F-150 at your New England Ford dealers. Ford trucks, built Ford tough. Welcome back to TB25, A History of Football, Episode 1. Tom Lydon, Butch Stearns with you. A reminder to check out our website, tb25.us. That'll bounce you over to our Facebook page. So happy you're with us, and I think you're really going to get a kick out of this guest. We've teed him up enough already. 80-year-old Jerry Kramer. He was in front of Bart Starr and Jim Taylor and Paul Hornig through all of those championship years. And, Butch, you started the conversation by asking him, does he still stay in contact with his Packers teammates? Here's his answer. Well, you know, when we see one another, we're huggers. Uh, and we see them, you know, there's a uh, Packer alumni weekend and, and various uh, outings and gatherings and autograph sessions. So I'm going to uh, Appleton, Wisconsin with Horning and Willie D and Donald Driver in a couple of weeks. And, uh, so we see a lot of them at a lot of different functions throughout the year. And there's a, still an in, incredibly strong bond there. Now, the impact your team left on this league is really indelible and probably not going to be matched. And what we like to do in this podcast, Jer, is kind of drill down a little bit 
and, and talk specifically about your experiences. So, you know, you joined the team at 58. And in that point, you know, football is really starting to boom. You had the big game between the Colts and the Giants. You get Lombardi as the head coach. When you saw him take the reins, what was your first reaction when Vince Lombardi is the head coach of the Packers? Who the hell is this guy? <laughs> we had talked to Curly Lambeau out in L.A. in the last game of the season in 58. Morning and McGee and Jimmy and I and Fuzz and five or six of us were having dinner at the Rams' horn. A restaurant owned by Don Dahl, linebacker from the Rams, and Curly was there. And he came over and sat down at our table, and we had a couple hour chat with him and a few drinks, and he was really interested in coming back to Green Bay. Uh, we were at the end of a horrible season. We ultimately <laughs> finished 110 and 1, worst record in the history of the franchise. And so it was logical that they were going to find another coach. Uh, our guy wasn't quite getting the job done, so. We were pretty excited knowing Curly's history and the championships that he had won. And uh, so uh, we were pretty pumped about it. And during the off season, they named this guy from New York who had his head coaching experience was St. Cecilia Prep High School. He'd been an assistant coach with two or three teams, including yeah. the Giants, where it was currently, but he'd never had a head coaching job. So we're going what in the world are they thinking about? They're getting an un unknown, unproven talent versus Curly, and that's not a very tough decision for me. Yeah. Well, obviously, I hadn't met Coach Lombardi, and I didn't know much about him. But uh, he was a um, man with a mission. I mean, he was when he arrived, he was all business and uh, no pleasure. So, Jerry, did he, he did he demand your respect right away? How did he earn... The respect of veteran well, NFL players. He was, he was a he was a head man and he was a head coach. And our first meeting of the year, he said, "Gentlemen, if you're not willing to make the sacrifice, to pay the price, to do the things you have to do to win, to put the team first above all else, then get the hell out right now. Get up and get out of here." And we looked at one another like, "This guy can't be that serious." I mean, come on. And then we had practice the next day in shorts and a T-shirt. In an hour and a half, I lost about nine pounds. Whoa. Yeah, and I'm going, wow. I mean, he can't keep this up. So he put us through incredible drills for the first year or two in training camp and everything else. And that, that fire and, uh, tempered the team, and it bound, bonded them together as a unit. Initially, if you could uh, hate Lombardi as much as I did, you're my pal. I don't care what you look like. I don't care if you're fat, tall, short, skinny, whatever. whatever. If you dislike him as much as I do, then you're my pal. You're my teammate. During that time, he started lecturing us in the evening. And we'd sit there, didn't want to hear anything, didn't want to soak up anything, didn't want to hear anything he had to say. And he would start talking about, very fundamental things like preparation. You got to be prepared to play. You got to know what your defense is doing, what your offense is doing, what your game plan is, what the tendencies are, and you got to be totally prepared to play the game. <clears throat> yeah, well, I guess that's right. I mean, I'll give him that. I'm not going to give him much, but I'll give him that. And then he asked for a commitment. Mind, body, heart, and soul, most of all self. That guy that you look at in the mirror in the morning say, gee, I could have, but, or I was going to, but, or if it really been important, I would have, but, 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 and then discipline, uh, consistency, pride, character, tenacity. Uh, so many things that he talked about were irrefutable. They were logical parts of a successful venture. And then we started to win. Yeah. And, uh, we won 7-5 in and, and, uh, 59, and we win the division in 60, and we play Philly in the championship game. And we that game ends when we're on the seven-yard line, and Jimmy Taylor is tackled and laid on by Chuck Bednarik for nine seconds <laughs> as the clock expired. And it was the most irritating, frustrating situation I think I've ever been in. I've been, I was in the locker room after the game. We, the game ended on the seven-yard line. 
and I am really frustrated and hot. We come so close to a championship, a dream most of us couldn't even dream. But we were there, and we should have won. Not that we could have won. We should have won. And so we're in a, scattered all over the locker room, and Coach Lombardi comes in and, bring it up, bring it up, everybody up. So we got together, and he got on a trunk, and he waited till everything quieted down. He said, all right, this year you played in the championship game. Next year we win the championship game. And at that moment, I threw in with him. I believed completely that he was right and that we were in that position. And I, I could look back at all the things he'd asked us to do and how right they were and how they paid off for us. And I said, I'm in with him. I'm, wow. I'm, I'm throwing in with him now. You know, Jerry, you and bring up a lot of point, things that I think is pretty cool because, you know, you mentioned that if a player hated him, he was on your team. Butcher reminds me a lot about the Olympic team with Herb Brooks, right? Exactly the 1980 right. Olympic team. But beyond that, Jerry, you set the stage here for us to kind of lay out the resume because you talked about that first game against the Eagles that you lost 17-13 to 13 on the road. But people who may not be completely in tune with your dynasty need to understand that you did go back in 61 and 62, play both of those games and win them. And then beyond that, you go on to win three more. So you're a five five-time champion with the Packers, and you come back that next year, and it appears, looking at the surface here, you dominated that whole year. So clearly the experience in Philadelphia carried over to that 61 season. Yeah, the frustration uh, was there, and the, and the commitment and the understanding and the, the willingness to work, the willingness to believe that we could be in the championship game if we paid the price, if we made the sacrifice, if we did all the things he wanted us to do. So we were we were hustling, we were running. Instead of trotting from one drill to the next, we were running at top speed. We were doing, and, and he used to, initially in his first year or so, we'd run the sweep, and most of the times we'd get it wrong. And he'd say, run it again, run it again, run it again. <laughs> and we would run it again. And that year in 62, we started saying, run it again, run it again. And so he didn't have to say anything to us. We were on his wavelength, and we were had the commitment and the dedication and the preparation, all the qualities, and we accepted them and believed in them. So we really, uh, he really had us by the bridle in a bit, but he had a hold of the reins pretty pretty tightly and and yes we had a great year in 62 marred by one uh, magnificent performance by the detroit lions on the that uh, fateful day thursday in detroit but a wonderful team jimmy was strong paul was strong bart had uh, been the kind of a quarterback that could hand off to jimmy and paul and the running game and throw those short darts over the middle and uh, kind of control the game and Bart matured to where Bart became a great quarterback, I believe, in that 62 season. And from that point on, he was as strong as Jimmy and Paul, and we just had ourselves a wonderful football team. We, we had, you know, in the 58 season, when we went 1-10-1, and we had 13 guys who were Pro Bowl, All-Pro, or Hall of Fame, and we were 1-10-1. So we really had a nucleus there that Coach Lombardi supplemented and put together other uh, Willie Davis and Henry Jordan and a variety of other players that made that team a great team. You know, history looks back at major events, and after that 62 year, the team has dealt the devastating blow of losing Paul Horning. Is too much made of that? How big a deal was that at the time? Because you didn't play in the next two championship games. How much of a, an impact did his absence have on that team? You know, it was Paul was not only our our uh, most valuable player; he was our hero. And we all, we all thought he was the coolest guy that ever lived. He was sharp. He was quick witted. He played cards. He played golf. He'd do anything he wanted to do, and and had a wonderful wit and a great smile. And uh, we really uh, enjoyed being with him, and he was a wonderful addition to the football team. So losing him, uh, we lost him in the second half of the 62 season actually and I took over the kicking duties at that point and got to kick in Yankee Stadium in the 62 championship with 
probably the biggest thrill of my life. And walking into Yankee Stadium was a great thrill. To have a part in a championship game was also beyond my imaginings and beyond my belief. So when he doesn't come back in 63, we're immediately down. I wrote him a long letter saying how disappointed I was and how frustrated we were and a whole bunch of other things. And uh, so it was a tough a uh, couple years there, and by the time he came back, he came back in 64 and worked his tail off, but he had lost a step in between, and his neck was bothering him, and knees were bothering him a little bit, and he was never quite the same ball carrier from that point on. Jerry, when you guys started winning, and it was right away, when Vince, you know, it was clear that, that Coach Lombardi was the one voice when players came onto the team, whether they were drafted or came from wherever, did they have to conform right away? Did you guys self-police in that locker room because it, the hole had become so much bigger than any individual? Yes, we did. We, we, uh, we took care of one another and we asked for a contribution from one another. And we measured your worth by the value to the team by the positive impact on the team. I remember Willie Davis came to town kind of in like 61 or so, and we didn't know Willie, and we didn't uh, have much to say to Willie, just nothing prejudiced or anything like that. It was just we didn't know him. And uh, Willie made a contribution. And I remember at the end of the season, I'm saying, Will, I hadn't talked to him very much. I had no reason to. He's as far into the locker room. He's on the defense. I've done the offense. But I said, Will, you had a hell of a season. Uh, you should make the all-pro team. And he said, well, Jay, you had a great year, too. You should make the all-pro team. So we started communicating with one another. And based on a common bond, a common contribution to the team, we were both really of the same attitude and the same consistency and disciplined performance, all of those things. So we we did judge by, and Coach Sabardi did too. Now, he, he wasn't real slow to, uh, Bill Quinlan at that same season where Willie made All-Pro, didn't make All-Pro, and Bill had a wonderful season, and pro- probably, arguably, could have made the All-Pro team. Probably should have. Um, he didn't. He went out and broke curfew and had a little too much uh, sauce and made a call to Coach Lombardi and complained about some things. And oh, this man. was in out west in San Francisco. So we played the game in San Francisco. We went back to play, I believe, the 61 game. Uh, the Two days after the championship's over, Bill's traded to Detroit. So he, he would not stand for anything less than right. 100% effort. You know, Tom, we're sitting there listening to Jerry Kramer talk. I'm in my 50s, and you're close. And But I think about it, and it stands the test of time. What the Packers were about back then is what any great franchise or any youth team that's ever gone on to accomplish something greater than they've done or thought they could, that's what the Packers were about back then. And, and sp- this is what sports is all about or what it's supposed to be about, is the whole being bigger than any individual. Right, Jerry? Exactly right. And you know, that, that, that applies to the business community. It applies to anything you want to accomplish. It applies to achievement, to success. There's a price to pay. And if you're not willing to pay that price, then get the hell out. Because we are going to pay that price, and we're going to do things right, and we're going to win. Jerry, so, yes, I, there's some, some great uh, similarities there. I want to ask you about probably the biggest star of the 1960s, Jim Brown. And, and his team did win the title in 64. And then the Packers and the Browns met in 1965. And in essence, it was Jim Brown's final game. He right. retired after that game. So that 65 championship, when you're facing the defending champs and you have them on your home field, that was the first of what ended up being three in a row for you. The second and then the third were the first two teams that went to the first two Super Bowls. But overlooked, perhaps, is that first win against the Browns in 65. How good was Jim Brown? And how much of an effect did he have on a game? And how big and how, what was the excitement level for that 65 title game, Packers uh, and Browns? Jimmy was about 6'2 and about 232 and had incredible balance and strength 
and vision and everything. I, I, if I'm going to start an all-time team in the history of the NFL, my first pick would probably be Jimmy Brown. Uh, he was a, an absolutely sensational football player, and we knew that. We played against him before, and we were ready to control the ball that game. Paul Horning, I believe, gained like 106 yards, and Jimmy Taylor 98 or vice versa. But we gained about 200 yards running between those two guys that day. And we were ready to play. Not just one guy, 40 guys <laughs> were ready to play. And we came out of there. I remember late in the ball game, I pulled left and Goldilocks morning is behind me. And I, a guy, a middle linebacker shoots and I just pop him with my fist and don't stop but go on out to the cornerback that I'm supposed to block. And he eases into the end zone. And it was not a real close ball game. I mean, we we felt that we could have beat them more than we did. But it was a, it was a you know, a start. And uh, it was absolutely the first of three. And that third championship became, at that time, a couple of years later, that became all that we were all about. You know, let me ask you, though, were you surprised that Jim retired after that game? Yes, I was. Uh, although I, I knew Jimmy, I got to play a little golf with him down in Florida, uh, some alumni outings and whatnot. And he was doing some movie things, some film things, yeah. and he it, they were he had he had something he was going to instead of something that he was leaving. He was looking forward to being in the, in the movie business, and he had success at it. So it was a surprise because he still had a lot of football in him. But it was understandable knowing that he was going to something that he really liked. Jerry, after that, you went on to play in Super Bowls one and two. What what was the Super Bowl to you? Did 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 that mean anything? I mean, it's grown to epic proportions. But at that time, did it mean anything that they had created this it, Super Bowl? Yes and no. The first Super Bowl really didn't mean a great deal to us. We'd won a championship the year before. It was our third championship, and winning the first Super Bowl was our fourth championship. So it wasn't a new experience, and it, it was kind of a, there, you know, there were 10,000 empty seats in the stadium. There was a big check, so and there was our pride, and it was the NFL pride. There were a lot of NFL owners calling Coach Lombardi saying, you got to beat them badly. You can't just win. you got to embarrass them. you got to pour it off. So it was a very important game for the NFL. But the next year, the second Super Bowl, was a chance to win three in a row, three championships in a row, something that no one had ever done. So that game meant a great deal to us. And it started the first night of training camp at St. Norbert College in De Pere, Wisconsin, when Coach Lombardi brought the team together and he said, all right, our goal is to win our third consecutive title. And it's going to take all the qualities that we've talked about, the commitment, the consistency, the discipline, all the qualities are going to have to be applied this year because everybody's going to be waiting for you. They'll be cocked and loaded. Every team has been studying your films. The worst team in the league is going to play their heart out at this game to beat you. So he gave us a look at what we were going to experience during the season, and it was a long an extremely difficult season. The capper was we played the Rams. We, the Rams had beaten us about three weeks before our playoff game in Milwaukee, and they came into town feeling pretty good about themselves. And Coach gave us a wonderful locker room speech, took a praise from St. Paul's epistle, and said, "Of all the runners who run in a race, only one can win. And we run not just to be in a race; we run to win." So we went out and kicked the Rams backside 28-7 to and went on to the Dallas Cowboys in Green Bay and the Ice Bowl. Now that whole game is kind of blurred except for the last four and a half minutes. We get the ball 65 yards from the end zone. It's 57 below zero chill factor. And in the previous 31 plays, 10 possessions, we gained a minus nine yards. Hmm. So Bart comes on the field, we're in the huddle, and I asked him later, I said, what possessed you 
to think you could score or do anything at all at that time. When we had a minus nine yards in the previous 31 plays in possession, he said, Jerry, I started to say something. I looked in your eyes. I looked in Forrest's eyes. looked in Ski's eyes. I knew you knew what we had to do, so all I said was, all right, let's go. And so that team used every ounce of Lombardi information, uh, commitment, consistency, discipline, everything they had to go down the field, and everybody uh, improved their performance. They elevated their performance for that 65-yard drive, and we scored with 13 seconds to go to win the Cowboy game, and it was something that I'm probably prouder of that drive than anything else I've ever done in football. Wow. And then we went up to our Super Bowl and our third consecutive championship. So Jerry. You can just see, hear it in his voice like, and yeah. then we won the Super Bowl. Yeah, right. <laughs> so Jerry, Bart Starr, I want to ask you a specific question. What made him so special, and if there's any quarterback since you retired, since Bart, that reminds you of him or exhibits some of those qualities, who has it been? Bart had the intangibles, you know, the beliefs, the commitment, the consistency, things you can't measure. Actually, if, if, and Bart was not an immediate hit. Bart was in his fourth season before he started a game and threw a touchdown in that game and won the game. It was his fourth year. So he was second string, third string, but he never quit. He never quit applying himself. He never quit believing in himself. He was just a, um, a quiet guy. Uh, we didn't know who Bart was. You know, Bart was a, a Mr. Quiet. In fact, the whole league felt that way. We're playing down in Chicago. They got a middle linebacker in the role of all the great middle linebackers Chicago's had. And this guy named Bill George. Bart throws a long pass. Bill George. I'm looking, and my defensive tackle stops and looks at the ball. I'm looking at the ball. Bart's looking at the ball. Bill George is coming. And he, Bart is standing there with his arms down defenseless, and Bill George hit him in the mouth with a forearm and split it, knocked him back four or five yards and split his upper lip up into his nose. And uh, he starts bleeding like a hog. And he said, that I'll take care of you, star, you wuss. And Bart says, bleep you, Bill George. We're coming after you. And I'm watching this, and Bart is bleeding down his jersey. And I say, Bart, you better go to the sideline and get sewn up. You're bleeding like a duck hog. He said, shut up and get in the huddle. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Excuse me. And he took us down the field about nine, ten plays, and we scored. Bart went to the, all went to the sidelines. They laid Bart down on the bench, and they sewed up his lip, and he goes back in the game with the next series. So he never misses a play. Wow. And so he can't play everybody, <laughs> everybody on the football team saw that, that discipline, that toughness, that under, underside of Bart that he'd never let anybody see. And at that moment, at that time, Bart Starr became our leader. And that was a wonderful moment for him and for us. And he was just a, um, he's the kind of a guy that you don't believe is that good. You know, I, I watched him for 10 years thinking I was going to catch him doing something off line, right? Never did. Finally threw in with him, said, I want to be like Bart Starr. I want to be mm-hmm. the kind of human being Bart is. And he was our leader, and he was deserving of every ounce of leadership that we gave him. Jerry, you mentioned that the 67 team was the team that won three straight championships. And a little trivia, Butch, you may not know this, but their Super Bowl ring, the ring that they wore that uh, signifies that the Packers won Super Bowl II, actually has three diamonds in it. And I had the good fortune, Jerry, of meeting Ray Nitschke a couple of times, and he was the one who explained that to me, how important that was to you guys, that that ring specifically had the three diamonds to signify the fact that you did something that nobody else had ever done. I know that in the news recently, you, you've gotten rid of your Super Bowl I ring. Do you still have the Super Bowl II ring? What's the story with the rings? That's the ring I wear. That's the, That's one the ring I wear. I have it I have it on my hand at this moment. I'm looking at it. Beautiful. That's the one that meant so much to me. That was Coach Lombardi's last game 
That was our third consecutive title. It was a difficult season that I talked to you about. Super Bowl one, you know, was just another ball game. But this was the third in a row, so this one means a great deal more to me. I see that drive at 57 below. I see Skaronsky making a wonderful play on George Andre, their defensive tackle. We're playing running the give play on Bob Lilly, and Lilly's a great football player. And we pull the guard, and Lilly follows him, and we give the ball to the fullback going through the hole without blocking Lilly. But the great difficulty is the block on George Andre, the defensive end. And Skaronsky is responsible for that block. And in the huddle, Bart says, Ski, can you block Andre on the give? And Ski says, run it on two. (laughs) That's my Super Bowl ring. That's my championship ring. That's the ring that means so much to me. I want to ask you about the AFL when it started and now looking back on it all those years. How did you feel about the league then? And looking back on it, how do you feel about the, the AFL now? Well, my mind changed about the second quarter of the first Super Bowl. We had, uh, we had made a little fun of the AFL players. We're watching the Kansas City Chiefs and uh, two of their safeties run together in the film. Uh, and Max McGee, an amazingly quick wit, went, and he's doing Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies from the comedy, right? And so we're giggling and laughing a little bit, and I've got a guy that's not uh, a, a great football player, he's a good, solid football player, but not great. But Buck Buchanan is on Fuzzy's side, and Buck weighed about 320 and was about 6'7", six, 6'8". Six, so we just really didn't uh, respect him. Uh, until we got in the game with them. And after the first quarter, we went, hey, this is a football team. These guys have got some great players, and they're a whole lot better than we thought they were. So we kind of sobered up and buckled down and went to work. Uh, and, and it's still that feeling today that they were a much better team than I imagined. And the NFL put a great deal of pressure. All the coaches I mentioned earlier, called Coach Lombardi and and put pressure on him to win and win big. Well, we were fortunate to win that game. All right, so every run has to come to an end. And for this incredible dynasty, that end came right after that Super Bowl II victory. Coach Lombardi left. Things changed. You only played one more season. Do you even think about how it ended? And how do you best describe how it kind of came to a halt after all those amazing years of success? Well, it was... uh... A difficult season, you know. Uh, we uh, were in the... I got a, a couple things from the season. I got a, a, a great appreciation for the Packer fans and an understanding of the Packer fans. And it came on the field against the Baltimore game in the late minutes of the game. We were mathematically alive, but we needed a train wreck and a plane crash and a, a few other things to happen for us to get in the playoffs. But mathematically, we could make it. And so we got the ball, we're down either three or six points, and we all know it, and we start moving it just like we did in the, in the championship game the year before, and we go bing, bang, bing, bang, and we're moving down the field eight yards, 12 yards, seven yards, nine yards, and we get across the 50-yard line to about the 40, and we fumble. And uh, they recover. And I go, it's over. That's it. It's over. And I start walking toward the sidelines, and I uh, notice some applause. And I'm going, "What the? What are you? What? What are you doing? It's over. Don't you realize it's over?" And I start trotting a little bit, and the applause picks up, and pretty soon the whole stadium is standing, and there's a roaring ovation. I'm going, "What the? Oh, they understand." They know it's over, and they're saying thank you for all the championships and all the years and all the memories. And I went, wow, isn't that something? So I developed a love and appreciation for the Packer fan from that season. As Coach Lombardi left, some of the coaches, my coaches especially, were experimenting with things that I had experimented with 10 years before. And I would go to the coach and say, Coach, let's do it this way. 
and his response would be, I'm the coach, and we're going to do it my way. And I would say, well, it's stupid. And we would get in a little conversation about things. And it was so difficult to do things that you knew were wrong and try to win. Uh, we, we, we looked at every inch, every, everything in the game, and we took advantage of everything we could possibly do, and we tried not to give away anything. And, and that season, we weren't doing that. And so it was just defeating to uh, be a part of that and not have any impact on it. Mm. So I decided it was time for me to go on down the road and maybe do some television work and do some other things. Well, you've done a lot since, and you did a lot then. And I can't tell you what a thrill it's been just to hear some of the stories, because you know both Butch and I are, are such big football fans, and to be able to talk to a guy who who made such a big imprint on the game of football with such a historic team. Uh, I sound like I'm sucking up, but I think I'm, I'm allowed to do that at this point when you talk to an 80-year-old well, legend. I'll suck up some more. I don't know how Jerry Kramer's not in the Hall of Fame. I can tell you that much. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a whole other topic for another day, but you're, you're sharp as a tack. Your memory's fantastic, and can't thank you enough for sharing those memories with us. Guys, it's been a great pleasure for me, and you can imagine living those days again, and even the memory of them, just bringing that up, is a great thrill. So thanks for having me on. What's not to like about Jerry Kramer? It's like you're talking to Grandpa, right? You have to understand he's going to be a little bit slow, but the stories are amazing. My favorite one was Bart Starr getting hit and bleeding <laughs> and leading the team down for a touchdown. It's still, I got goosebumps when he talked about when he first met Vince Lombardi and the group of guys started saying, who is this guy? What is it? But, but think about the championship runs over the years. The Packers are as good as any team in any sport ever. The Canadians, Yankees, Celtics, you name it. The San Antonio Spurs, whatever. And for them to buy in to what Vince Lombardi was selling as a group, because he demanded it. He would not accept anything less. And they bought into it very quickly and became champions almost immediately right away and sustained that, Tom. It's remarkable what they did. As we go, a couple of vital reminders. Please like our Facebook page. You can get there immediately through our website, tb25.us. That's TB for Tom and Butch, 25 for Fox 25. Pretty simple. And spread the word, really. Tell people about the podcast. Interact with us on the Facebook page. Send us pictures and stories, ideas of stuff you'd like us to talk about. If you're listening through iTunes or Stitcher, very important and very helpful. Please give us a review. The more positive reviews, the better for everybody. We've got a ton of stories to share. I got a lot of people I'd like us to interview, so help us out along the way. We're all going to have some fun. We end it with this, Butch. So what? So what? What's your takeaway from the 60s? So what? The 60s are the foundation of the NFL. To watch what the NFL is today, you need to respect and appreciate the people the franchises, the fans, and all that happened in the decade of 60 to 70, none of it that goes on in the NFL today happens without those people and what happened in that decade. Here's my so what. I think probably the most important thing was the understanding of how this business is a business. You know, it was middling. It wasn't middling once 1970 hit, and we're going to get into that as we go along. Until next time, I'm Tom. I'm Butch. And that's TB25, a history of football. Thanks for listening.